0: Look, I've said this before, but I love podcasts. I love them for the same reason that I've always loved radio, where I started my career. I still remember the thrill of that very first broadcast I made as a new recruit to the BBC, working from a 1940s style basement studio in Bush House in The Strand. Uh, And I remember the first words, I remember them exactly, that I spoke on radio. This is the external services of the BBC from London. The following programme is in Mandarin Chinese. And that was it. But anyway, the the great advantage for the BBC was that its bills were paid by the government. That's not true for us, which is why I need you to help us by becoming a subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. You're going to have to memorise this because you won't have a pen in your hand. www.menziesrc.com Dot .org Have you got that?
1: We're not here just to
0: win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello and welcome to another water cooler conversation, a presentation by the Menzies Research Centre. It's a place where we like to pour fine ideas lovingly into the decanter and give them time to breathe. I'm Nick Cater and I'm uh, recording alone today in our studio in Sydney's desolate central business district in the middle of a merciless lockdown, uh, which seems like it'll never end. Uh, look, I've realised uh, during this time that the essence of this city's great beauty is not the harbour, the opera house or the largest jewel pinned steel arch bridge in the world, but the people. Anyway, that's probably way too much sentiment for one day, so let's get on with the podcast. In this edition, you'll hear a stout defence on the importance of religion in politics and the wider public sphere. The Menzies Research Centre is a secular organisation, just like the country it attempts to serve, but that doesn't mean that religion has no place in the civic realm. Indeed, it's worth noting that of the 30 Prime Ministers since Federation, only one, Julia Gillard, entered office as a confessed non-believer. Australian voters are clearly comfortable with leaders who profess Christian values like our present one and indeed they may even prefer them. We'll be exploring the intersection between politics and religion further with the imminent publication of our latest book God and Menzies by David First Roberts and we'll be talking to David in future podcasts but in this program my guest is journalist Greg Sheridan who tackles this subject in his latest book Christians the urgent case for Jesus in our world it's an elegant continuation of the themes he explored in his last book God is good for you not everybody is going to agree with Greg and not everybody is going to agree with me when I say this is one of the most important books of the year but in any case it's well worth listening to what Greg has to say Greg Sheridan joins me today from Lockdown in Melbourne. Greg, welcome back to Water Cooler. Great to be with you, Nick. First, uh, a confession. This this is the first and I I hope the only time that I've gone into an interview with an author without having studied their book. Uh, And I can make my excuses for that, but I'm not going to accept to say Uh, the reason I did was that I was so excited um, about the book, about the title, and... So high is my regard for you, Greg, my trust in you over the years that I knew wow. instantly this is going to be a book that is well worth recommending. Uh, and, uh, and I would say if anybody, if you want to walk out at this point, please do. <laughs> no, that's fine.
1: Thank uh, you and if anybody
0: anybody watching would prefer an interviewer who's read the book, then I suggest you uh, you switch over to John Anderson, johnanderson.com, because I know he has read it because we've had a, a long and fascinating discussion about the book. So, uh, Greg, uh, welcome once again. You better, I think, in the light of that Thank confession, and I'm, I'm glad you haven't walked off, you, can you give me a, a brief synopsis?
1: Sure, Nick. So the book is called Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. And um, I can hold a copy of it up if you like. Uh, uh, the uh, it's, um, it's in two halves, like my last book, God Is Good For You. My last book, God Is Good For You, was essentially an argument about the rationality of belief in God. This is an argument about the rationality of belief in the New Testament. So the the first half of this book is uh, about the uh, Jesus and his first friends in the New Testament. One chapter makes a very strong argument for the historicity of the New Testament. Every historical and archeological discovery we make bears out the accuracy of the New Testament. That doesn't prove the miracles, but it does prove that Jesus really lived and that the gospels were written you know in a very short time after his death within certainly within one lifetime and paul's epistles even earlier than that um and then there are chapters on the historical figures of paul and mary and uh, a treatment of john's gospel which is uh, one of the most remarkable uh, pieces of literature in 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 all of human uh, history and then a little self-indulgent chapter on why i believe in angels and how good angels are then the second half of the book Uh, begins with a survey of christ in popular culture and he's um he's been banished to some extent but there are some very encouraging places where he appears Uh, tv series like jane the virgin and the magnificent novels of marilyn robinson Uh, and then there's a series of interview profiles with contemporary christians who are doing interesting things among them our prime minister and a number of um, uh, christian church leaders and bill hayden the former labor leader a number of women who are motivated to look after people because of their their love of Christ. And uh, so the second half, the first half is Jesus and his first friends. The second half is Jesus friends today.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to get into there. We will in a minute. Um, But first, Greg, um, I I realized when I was thinking through this uh, interview that uh, you and I have known one another Probably professionally for more than thirty years. Certainly as co- colleagues since I started the Australian in uh, two thousand and three or two thousand and four. I don't recall, uh, but and, and certainly as as friends, good friends. You know, you we've been good friends Absolutely. with you. But here's the here's the point I'm, I want to make, Greg. This I think is the first time that you and I have actually sat down and had a serious conversation about faith, about religion. Even though I know you're a man. Of faith, and and I'm a man of humble faith too. So why is it that we've known one another for so long? Is this is this reflective of the way we've relegated faith to the sort of private
1: sphere? So Nick, that's a really acute observation and a fascinating uh, insight, really. That that is isn't that striking? Isn't mm. that striking? Um, I think there are several explanations of it. Uh, In Australia, historically, so I've been a professional journalist for about uh, 42 or 43 years. In Australia, uh, when I began in journalism, there was an old sort of secular settlement because in the 19th century, Australia had been characterised by a lot of arguments between Catholics and Protestants. The Australian version of secularism meant not that God was banished from the secular square, but that we didn't talk too much about religion so that we wouldn't always be arguing with each other on denominational grounds. I'm happy to report now the denominational hostilities have all gone. We're all good friends now. Instead of you know, agreeing on 99% of everything and arguing furiously about the 1%, we're tending to emphasize the 99%. The other thing is, I do think the culture has turned against Christianity and people are a bit embarrassed uh, about it. I think there's also a, a sort of becoming modesty which is part of the Australian character, you know. There's a tremendous distrust for ratbags and uh, people who are, in any sense at all, claiming moral superiority for themselves are distrusted. Of course, no Christian ever really claims moral superiority for themselves. You know, where, uh, they just claim that they believe in in uh, in Christ, not that they're not that they're, you know, better at behaviour. I mean, I've never had any problem with belief. I've always had the most enormous difficulties. Living up to the basic ethical standards of belief, but but all of those factors combined, I do think it produces a, a, a reticence which you don't find in America. I've done thinks uh, I've done stints at American think tanks, and when Easter is coming up or something, colleagues will say to you, "These are strategic think tanks, nothing to do with uh, religion." Colleagues will say to you, "What are you doing after services on Sunday? Uh, would you like to get together for a barbecue or something?" So they just sort of assume that you're going to church services on on uh, on Sunday morning. Um, so that is surprising, really, that we can be such good friends and yet such an element of our lives is not something that we'd ever, ever, you know, I remember many years ago at The Australian, the first time I wrote an article, a sort of a, a breezy article, recounting some things at the weekend, and I mentioned that I'd been to mass and one of the section editors, whom I won't defame by naming, said to me, oh, should you really put that in the paper, you know, that you went to Mass? As though it's a sort of a, it's a legal activity, but best conducted by consenting adults in private and in secret.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, that's a mistake. And, and, and I, I think one of the important things you do in this book and your previous one, uh, God is good for you, is to is to correct that, to say, look, it's, it's fine to talk about it in the public sphere. And I want in a minute to talk to you about the intersection between politics and religion more specifically, and uh, because you, you go into that again in this book as you did in the last. Uh, but first look, let's get to the hard question first. I, I know you as a journalist, I know you as a very good journalist, an old school journalist brought up in the tradition of where you actually had to go out and find facts, and you knew that the first and only duty of a reporter was to write what he knew to be true. So let's go to the hard question first. Having examined uh, the historical basis for the gospel, is the gospel true?
1: Yes, Nick, I believe it is true. So I believe it is true uh, religiously, as it were. I believe in the miracles and the resurrection and so on. But I also believe that history establishes that it's broadly true. It's a little bit analogous to the debate about the existence of God. The anti God forces, so to speak, try to bluff Christians out of their beliefs by telling them that science has decided against God or or ruled that God is impossible. Of course, that's absolute baloney. When you look at the arguments of the atheists, they're just the same old 19th century nonsense. And science hasn't decided anything of that kind. And a million scientists believe in God. And in fact, science is not competent to decide about God anyway. It's the same with the New Testament. Two or 300 years ago, biblical scholarship uh, was led by people who wanted to take the divine out of history. So they examined everything in the scriptures with an, with an assumption that there could be nothing divine, there could be no miracle, there could be no resurrection. And because we didn't have such great evidence in those days, their theories could gain a lot of popularity. But ever since then, every bit of empirical evidence we had falsifies the falsification of the Gospels. So let me just give you a few examples. We discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 1940s. The Dead Sea Scrolls don't intersect directly with the New Testament, but what they establish is that the New Testament was describing with absolute accuracy Jewish life of that time. So this would have been impossible to reconstruct for city-based Christians two or three hundred years later, as one of the early conspiracy theories had it. Everything that is in the New Testament, Is borne out as a feature of Jewish life in the Dead Sea Scrolls, arguing about who you can eat with and should you rescue an an animal that falls into a well on the Sabbath and and loads and loads of other things. A couple of hundred years ago, German biblical scholarship thought that the scriptures had been written very late. But then we found a substantial fragment of John's Gospel in Egypt, which physically can be dated to the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century at the latest. Now that is hard physical evidence. That's not literary theory or criticism or anything. That shows you that by the year 100 AD, John's gospel had become a written, established piece of scripture and had been exported all the way to Egypt. Uh, We found um, there was a, a question of whether the New Testament's title for Pontius Pilate was accurate because it disagreed with a, a title given by a, a later Roman historian. Then they discovered a stone inscription in the Holy Land, which bears the New Testament's title, which shows that the New Testament was right and the later Roman historian was wrong. We discovered, uh, so people used to say nobody who was crucified ever got a private burial, so Jesus couldn't have been buried in that way. Then we discovered um, tombs and remains of some figures who had been crucified. And we can establish this by the, the nail wounds in their ankles and so forth. So that establishes that indeed some people who were crucified did get private burials. So this is not an anachronism made up later by the later uh, Christian um, leaders. And then the final piece of evidence i'll offer you although there are there are literally thousands of pieces of evidence like this then you've got the next generation of christian leaders so by 64 ad rome has a terrible fire and nero blames christians so uh christians already 30 years or 34 years after jesus is dead are is already a big group in in rome paul's letters we know were written about 20 years after jesus death well that's the scholarly consensus the first of the letters and he is already saying to established christian communities um, as you already know christ is risen from the dead so this is this is established christian doctrine from very very early after jesus um, death and then finally as the final piece of evidence i was going to offer you there are the group of people that we call the apostolic fathers polycarp clement of rome Um, the first Ignatius now these are very well attested historical figures they left substantial writings Uh, there's no real doubt about their historicity and they knew the apostles so they didn't know Jesus but they knew the apostles Clement was uh, a friend of or taught by Peter Polycarp was taught by John now that is exactly the confirming evidence you would expect if in fact the New Testament was true and um to to have the old conspiracy theory that the New Testament somehow or other is a fake document made up a uh, hundred years later or two hundred years later or something, it's just against all the evidence. You have to believe that on the basis of divine inspiration and ignore all the evidence. You know, one of the paradoxes: people who believe in miracles do so on the basis of evidence; people who say there can never be a miracle do so on the basis of doctrine.
0: Yeah, I mean. Uh... Atheism. Atheism is, let's face it, it's a hypothesis. It's not a, a proven fact. It's as much a step of faith as belief, I guess. But I- I- if athe- if the atheist thesis stacked up, then you'd expect that the huge advances we've made in science, the, 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 the great expansion of archaeology and much, much more uh, forensic archaeological digs in, uh, say, Jerusalem, you'd think that layer by layer, they would be proving or disproving um, the the events as told in the Bible. But actually, the opposite is happening in both fields, both in archaeology and in science, as I understand it. In archaeology, every layer they go down, they find that another of the begats, you know, this long series of who begat who in the, in the Old Testament turns out to be true, they'll find a coin or a record, they'll find records of a flood or this, that and the other, not... Uh, in the city of Jerusalem, that is. So it, it, it stacks up, begins to stack up more and more. And in the field of science, of course, the Big Bang theory uh, brings you back to the central point that the universe does seem to have had a beginning. It had didn't just exist as as atheism might want to believe, and uh, and more than that, intelligent design. DNA is proving to be such an amazingly complex and intricate set of algorithms that it it's the most logical theory is that there was a creator. So would you
1: agree with that view? Oh, absolutely, Nick. I think you're 100% right. So I think atheism is a religious faith. Uh, I, I think being an agnostic is saying, I don't know. I just don't know. This is above my pay grade. I just can't work it out. But if you're an atheist, you're asserting that there is no God. You're asserting that the universe is made only of matter and energy. And to get to that requires much more magical thinking so as you say the human life is so incredibly unlikely how do the atheists explain it and they say well uh, there must be an infinite number of universes and we just lucked into the one that's good for life but this creation of an infinite number of universes that is a much bigger leap of faith there's no evidence for it at all and there's no authority for it they just kind of made it up so they the atheists have to make things up to stand their hypothesis up now, I do believe that finally, science and reason neither prove God nor disprove God. But I agree that God is the most consistent with everything that we know. Um, so the universe is so unlikely. If the Big Bang had been a bit stronger, the planets would have all shot out and never formed properly. If it had been a bit weaker, the planets would have all come back into, into the central explosion. Um life depends on carbon carbon develops very in a very eccentric fashion you know the the chance of any life existing is is tiny the chance of human life existing is even tiny now that doesn't prove that there's this was done by god but it certainly there is no proof uh, that you know that it was done without god and the most likely everything that fits with human and and then finally on the question of God, I think the human intuition for God, you know, we're hungry, that indicates there's food. We're lonely, that indicates there's friendship. Human human beings through their entire history have related to God. That indicates there's God. And then on the on the Bible, I think probably the Old Testament has a great deal of historical truth, but I don't myself make the same claims for the historicity of the Old Testament as I do for the New Testament. Many things in the Old Testament are just so long ago that we can't find evidence for them. I'm not, I don't want to distress any Christian friends here. I'm not asserting that the Old Testament is wrong in any way. I'm just saying I remain, and I don't think as a Christian, it's absolutely critical to me that everything in the Old Testament physically happened. I think, you know, there's lots of um, Christians have always, since the earliest times, you um, had metaphorical and allegorical uh, interpretations of elements of the Old Testament. And so Saint Augustine said, you know, you don't look to Genesis as a, as a book of um, of biology or astronomy or something. But the New Testament, that's a different matter altogether. Christianity roots itself in real history. So in Hinduism, Krishna walked the earth, but he did so in a sort of a mythical prehistory time. He didn't do it in a certain year where you can falsify everything. Christ walked the earth 2000 years ago, and this history is relatively recent. It's falsifiable. There's so many things you can check about it. And all Orthodox Christians, I think, uh, attest to the historicity of the events in the New Testament. So uh, I'm delighted to find that archeology span and scholarship is all moving in that direction. Wonderful book by Richard Borkham. Um, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, really establishes that all of the Gospels were written within the space of one lifetime of Jesus. So two of the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, John and Matthew. Mark and Luke were written by people who interviewed eyewitnesses. Uh, Paul, as I say, was written within 20 years of Jesus' life. The great other great biblical scholars, N.T. Wright, James Dunn and so on, have gone down the same road. And all of the evidence Points in that direction. Now you can still say, if you like, that they made up the miracles, and history can't prove prove you wrong. But history cannot prove anything uh, material in the New Testament wrong either.
0: Well, let's just let's just go to the miracles, uh, and indeed angels, I guess, which uh, you 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 come to the defence of. Um, the point is that these are matters you will you, that should not be able to be proven. Empirically, since they are matters of faith, and uh, it is a sign of your commitment and and your your Christian journey or, um, or or the equivalence in other religions that you 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 adopt these things of faith uh, by faith. That's right, isn't it?
1: Yeah, um, that's right, Nick. Uh, I, I so I believe in miracles because. If God can't do miracles, then He's not God. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, God can do whatever He likes. You know, He's like the leader of a political party; he can do whatever He can do whatever He wants. Um, and uh, it would be a very weird conception of God that God can only do the things we do. Now, I think some miracles can be attested by reason. So, you know, when the Catholic Church makes someone a saint, they have to they have to have been responsible through intervention of prayer for two attested miracles. and these are generally cures. Now you cannot absolutely say that a cure is a miracle because there are spontaneous remissions and so on. but nonetheless they are very heavily uh, investigated these these occurrences and um, as far as they can, the authorities established that they really were miracles. Now I think the resurrection, is a historical event, and it really happened. And the authors of the Gospels and the Epistles, they try to establish it empirically. They say, so Paul says, um, you know, this person witnessed it, that person witnessed it. He gives the, the names of people, and then he says 500 people witnessed it, and many of them are still alive. Now, given that these documents were written and distributed at the time when those folks were still around, so one of the lines of biblical criticism is what they call form criticism. And they say that what happened was there was a long oral tradition. And, um, you know, there were many uh, additions and subtractions and distortions in the long oral tradition. And then eventually it was written down a long time later. Actually, that's not what happened. And you can establish that that didn't happen historically. As I say, Paul, the belief is that he wrote his first letter Galatians in probably 58 AD. That might be 18 years after jesus death so it's impossible that there was a long oral tradition which later resulted in these documents instead of which you've got dozens or hundreds of people alive who witnessed all these events while these documents are being written and they would have been the guardians of the veracity of these events now they didn't have um mobile phones, they couldn't take selfies in the ancient world. The best way you establish the veracity of event was to cite people. Nick Cater saw it, Greg Sheridan saw it. They're reliable witnesses. And that's what you get in the gospel. So you get really the strongest historical um, verification. Now, I, I think it's very difficult. I wouldn't judge anyone else's faith, but I think it's very difficult to be a Christian and not believe in miracles. If you take out miracles and angels from the Bible, you probably remove 50% Fifty percent of the text, or something, you know, and and then you have to say, well, why bother with it at all if if half of it is untrue? Uh, but but yes, I don't think you can establish that the great miracles of Christianity. You can't prove it in a court. Although there have been wonderful books written looking at all the evidence and saying, well, it's the only hypothesis, you know, the empty tomb, the testimony of so many people, and also the incredible transformation. I mean, at the time of the crucifixion. The only male disciple of Jesus who was willing to stand at the foot of the cross was John. The women were much braver, as is usually the case. You know, the men were missing in action. They'd gone into hiding. But the women were standing at the foot of the cross because they're braver and more faithful. So the apostles and all the disciples were terrified. Three days later, Jesus is risen, comes back to them, and they are transformed. They then become from being so scared they won't go near the cross at the crucifixion to going out and preaching the risen Christ and happily embracing martyrdom and death rather than um, change their testimony. So that's another thing. You have to give a witness a lot of credibility when he or she is willing to accept death rather than change their testimony. So I think the the case for the resurrection is very strong. But ultimately, you either believe that that sort of thing is possible or, or you don't.
0: I did say I talk about the Apostle Paul. We're getting down some very interesting uh, pathways here, and I want to make sure in this conversation that that we don't, you know, we 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 talk about this in a way that that uh, even people of of no faith can can understand sure. and appreciate. I think that's yeah. and that's that's what you did in your first book, and I think it was it was a very strong book for that. But but he, let's just talk about Paul for a second because one of the topics of regular conversation in my household and and having met. My wife, Rebecca, you'll 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 know why is really the intersection between Judaism and Christianity and and the Apostle Paul, of course, has a very important role to play in, in, I guess, explaining this, really explaining why the gospel is an extension of Judaism in that it's the first, if you like, gesture of inclusivity. It's an early gesture of diversity in that they say, well, it's not the Jews are the chosen people, but this is for everybody.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Uh, Nick. You're you're quite right. I try to write for a general audience. You certainly don't have to be a believing Christian to read my book, although I'm going to put the case for Christianity, but I'm going to do it as a secular journalist. Andrew Bolt paid me a wonderful compliment the other night he said, You've read and you've written about the Gospels as a professional journalist. And really, that's one of the nicest things anyone has ever said about me in my whole life, I would say. But Paul is a fascinating character. Now, a lot of non Christian historians regard Paul as one of the five or six most important people in human history. And uh, Larry Sittentop, the great Oxford scholar, I, I don't think he's a believing Christian at all, but he's one of the greatest historians of ideas especially, he says that Paul invented Christianity. I I don't think that's true. I think Paul was a disciple of Christ and faithfully uh, gave expression to Christ's teachings. But Paul was the organisational genius of Christianity. In my book, I I call him Christ's Lenin. And I'm not making any moral equivalence between Paul and Lenin. But just as Lenin understood the theory of Marxism-Leninism and he understood how to turn it into state power, so paul understood the theory of the jesus movement and he understood how to turn it into a tremendously successful movement i think paul is a fascinating character and you know his his writings make up whatever it is 40% or something of the new testament they're only 70 or 80 pages all up but they are they are among the most important beautiful and brilliant writings we have and also they're fantastically human you know he's often bad tempered he has a terrific dispute with peter At one stage in the uh, letter to the Galatians, he says, I wish all these people misleading you would go on, castrate themselves. And I suspect he's sort of having a bit of a joke there. It's a bit hard to get the humour across 2,000 years. He's concerned quite a bit with fundraising, which shows what a practical, you know, the early Christians, they didn't just live by diaphanous vision. You know, they had to actually go out and, you know, establish the Menzies Research Centre equivalents and so on. Uh, But Paul, I think, is uniquely fascinating because He's the first cosmopolitan intellectual in the Christian movement, and he mastered—he uniquely mastered three worlds. So Paul was a devout Jew, grew up in Tarsus in a family of Pharisees, was a tent maker, studied the Jewish scriptures very, very deeply, and and knew them very, very well. So he mastered the Jewish world. He was also a master of the Greek cultural world. There are lovely books, you know, when God spoke Greek and so on. We. We must realize how dominant greek was as a cultural influence in the ancient world it was the the language of educated people and of course it had the great inheritance of greek civilization and philosophy and so on paul completely mastered greek and all the greek classics and we don't know quite why but paul was also a roman citizen so this must have come probably from his father most people in the provinces weren't roman citizens but paul was a full roman citizen and a couple of times when he's in captivity he doesn't get executed and so on because he's a Roman citizen. So he took from the Jewish world, monotheism and interaction with a, with a personal God. He took from the Greek world, rationalism and the inheritance of the Greek philosophers, and he took from the Roman world, globalism. And he fused those three influences together. And then he, he transformed them again by fusing them with his Christian vision. And then he completely turned the the ancient world upside down. The ancient world was based on hierarchy and inequality. Men were superior to women. Masters were superior to slaves. Firstborn sons were superior to second and thirdborn sons. Paul's great statement of universalism, there is neither Greek nor Jew, uh, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. That was revolutionary. And in time, it ripped the mind out of the ancient world it was a spectacular act of pro-human rights pro-liberation empowerment for every human being all of a sudden a slave could get could find salvation in heaven as easily as his master a woman was equal in the relationship with god with her husband now paul on the question of jewishness neither paul nor jesus ever deprecated judaism which they were part of and neither should any christian judaism is the means by which god in the in the judeo-christian tradition revealed himself to the human race but paul's view was that jesus teachings were that the new the new creation fulfilled the jewish law and therefore um, transcended the old specific provisions of the jewish law there was a terrific argument in the early Jesus movement whether new converts had to convert to Judaism as well as Christianity. This had one very big practical consequence, Nick, which you'll appreciate. Male converts would have had to undergo circumcision. This would have been a really significant uh, barrier to recruiting men to Christianity. So Paul, Peter initially said, no, you don't have to convert to Judaism. Then he went back a bit. He vacillated. He went back and forth. Paul was fierce and was not anti-Jewish. It was just the universalism of the new message that purification was spiritual rather than than physical and ritual. Paul won that debate and that allowed Christianity to be a universalist um, religion. And that, I think, really shaped western history for the next 2,000 years.
0: Mm. Greg, we could i on talking about that particular issue, which for me is one of the really important questions of our time. when we talk about the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, which Australia inherited, that's crucial. But look, we've got to move on. Let's move on to the second half of the book now, where you look at the place of Christianity in, in contemporary culture in Australia, starting with politics. And, and um As you know, the Menzies Research Centre is just about to publish a book called God and Menzies. Uh, Some suggested we should call it Menzies and God, but uh, (laughs) that apart. It it is a fascinating book by David First Roberts, which will be out shortly. Um, And 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 it studies Robert Menzies Christian thinking, his Christian philosophy, uh, more than his belief, because we don't actually know what he believed but we know what he spoke about very articulate articulated many times in great with great skill uh, and that was the Christian faith and how it related to his conception of liberalism liberalism being uh, you know the belief that uh, everybody deserves equal respect uh, that of course comes straight from you know what you've been talking about with Paul universalism everybody's equal before God that, that, that uh, love thy neighbour as thyself, uh, my, I am my brother's keeper. They're expressions of the civic duty that we have, which uh, it balances out our freedoms, uh, which really you know, binds society together. I think it's an important book because it for the first time makes that link very clear and it has an introduction uh, by the Prime Minister. So it's a long way of leading on to say, uh, how can we be more open and explicit about the relationship between faith and religion, and ma- talk ab- and be prepared to have matters about conversations about politics um, actually refer to spiritual and biblical reference points. you've you've spoken to many leading politicians about this. You tell me.
1: Well, Nick, uh, I must say your book sounds wonderful, and uh, you know the things that the Menzies Research Center produces are. Terrifically good for our culture, and I, I really look forward to uh, to to that book. Um, in this book, uh, I spoke to four political leaders uh, or political or civic leaders Scott Morrison, John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister, Bill Hayden, the former Labour leader, and Peter Cosgrove. Um, Scott Morrison, I think, is an admirable in terms of the way he does his Christianity. It's not a political book. I'm not saying who to vote for or anything. It's not a left-right book. It's not a culture wars book. But I think he's very straightforward with me and in general about his Christianity. He doesn't try to shove it down anyone's throat, but nor does he run away from it. He's very straightforward about it. I think that's absolutely the right tone right for him to take. People regard him as a little exotic because they're unfamiliar with Pentecostalism. Increasingly, the culture is unfamiliar with Christianity. So my book in part tries to demystify Pentecostalism, I think it's a perfectly mainstream, normal part of Christianity. Their distinctive elements. They speak in tongues and believe in faith healing. Well, most Christians pray for people who are sick and hope that they'll get better. So we all really believe in faith healings. There's a lot of speaking in tongues in the New Testament. And really, it's just asking the Holy Spirit to to speak through you. Now, if you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, but you don't think Pentecostals are fakes, you might just say it's a free-range vocalisation of prayer, just like a Catholic singing a Latin hymn or something. He might not know exactly what the Latin words mean, but he understands it's a sentiment for God and it's beautiful music and so on. I've been to a lot of occasions where there is speaking in tongues. I'm not Pentecostal myself, I'm a Catholic, but um, but I don't find it, 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 it's not anywhere near as weird as people make out. But as it happens, Scott Morrison, who was not brought up a Pentecostal, tells me he himself, doesn't speak in tongues. Peter Cosgrove uh, was fascinating because he talks for the first time about prayer and belief in battle. So he was a platoon commander in Vietnam and Vietnam was a platoon commander's war. He saw a lot of action. He participated in a lot of military action. And he talks about the sadness of seeing the enemy dead whom he and his men have killed, not remorse because they believe they're doing what their nation asked them and operating according to the laws of war and morally and so forth, but a fellow feeling and a sadness about the enemy who is killed. And also a, almost a constant prayer to God while you're in battle, uh, you know, you don't stop and nut- kneel down and say the rosary, but you're saying, Oh, help me get through this or thank you that, you know, I survived and so on. And then Bill Hayden, I found Bill Hayden profoundly moving. I always thought Bill Hayden was a tremendously decent bloke. And, uh, you know, he suffered a terrible tragedy early in his madri- marriage. His five-year-old daughter was killed in a car accident. He told me he was uh, insane with grief, deranged with grief at the time. And he says he never really recovered from it in his whole life. And, um, and he ultimately found atheism tremendously empty. I, I, he, he tells me very moving things about the brutality of his father towards his mother and how he wanted to be a policeman to stop men like that. Um, of the warmth he found uh, amongst some nuns that he knew in Brisbane, and he found that one he thought was a profoundly holy woman, and he couldn't bear the emptiness of atheism. His wife Dallas is a Christian believer, and finally he made his way back to belief, and I, I f- find him tremendously inspiring. I wish our politicians would talk a bit more openly about their Christian belief. I'm, i don't, I'm not, they're not, I don't think they're cowards or anything. I think they're modest and the culture encourages them not to speak about their Christianity. I don't necessarily want us to be like America where I think too many politicians try to say that their policy is the only policy which a Christian can embrace. So I think that's only true in a very small number of cases. You know, I don't think a Christian can be a Nazi. I don't think a Christian can be a communist, but I think to be honest, center left or center right, The Bible doesn't tell you what the interest rate should be or how you should organize fiscal policy or whether you should deregulate industrial relations. It tells you you should care for people and care for the poor and so on. So I think Morrison is right to say the Bible is not a policy handbook. Nonetheless, everyone else except Christians is free to say what life experience influenced their values, which they bring to politics. But if a Christian sort of says that, we somehow or other feel that it's improper. I thought the reaction to Scott Morrison when he said, you know, on the campaign trail, he was feeling a bit dejected and he looked for inspiration and he saw the image of an eagle and he thought of that Bible verse which says, you will soar with the wings of an eagle and you will run and your limbs will not grow weary. He was saying he found inspiration in that. He was not saying he was the eagle of God swooping on an innocent public to impose, um, you know, God's morality or something. So I do wish our culture was a bit more... Um, Robust and or forthcoming or easygoing about that. Final thought for you, Nick. You know Clement Attlee, the Labour leader who introduced the welfare state, used to talk routinely about the spiritual dimension of socialism. And of course, socialism or social reform was predominantly a Christian, uh, a Christian operation. You know what? You'd know this better than me. But wasn't there a phrase the British Labour Party was a Methodist? Uh, was a Methodist? Um, church in in politics or something
0: like this you know or methodist church of prayer yeah Uh, and and the and the conservatives were supposed to be the church of england at at prayer but i i just to reinforce your point about not being a political thing at all as as an anglican i've been you know i could i could attest to the number of Anglican ministers who seem to uh, take uh, the Guardian editorial as their text for the day rather than the gospel I mean this is this is self-evidently true but this is the point I want to make i o- move on to Greg and yet it seems that on what we loosely call the left although I'm increasingly thinking that's that's a very inaccurate description um, there is this antagonism brutal antagonism towards Christianity and the Catholic Church your church in particular, and the, the 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 cardinal example, if I could say so, of course, is George Pell. Uh, forgive the pun, but I, I was talking to uh, um, a publisher only yesterday uh, about George Pell's magnificent uh, prison diaries, which I'm I'm finding very um, inspiring reading in lockdown because you realise that it could be worse. But it, 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 he he told me that he'd been out in Melbourne to try and buy a copy of. Uh, Pell's Prison Diaries, only to find that at least two major book shops, as a matter of policy, were not going to stock it. Uh, despite the fact that this man's been, um, uh, his, the conviction was overturned 7-0 by the High Court, they still think he's too below the, you know, beneath them to publish. Can you you're in Melbourne? Can you explain where I think this is a strong? This sentiment seems much stronger, by the way. Can you explain this to me? What's going on? Who is it, and why are they so adamant that Christianity uh, is is a bad thing?
1: Yeah, so Nick, that's a that's a, a huge issue, and I think it is central in our culture today, uh, and across the Western world. So the Western world is very eccentric. By the Western world, I mean Western Europe, North America, Australia, and New Zealand. Christianity is in an ambient statistical decline in those in that part of the world. Everywhere else, it's doing very well. You know, In China, it's gone from three or four million. There are two chapters in my book about Chinese Christianity, where three or four million when the communists came to power, somewhere between 60 and 120 million now. Well, that's, that's an astonishing growth in terrible circumstances. Christians are severely persecuted in places like Pakistan, a lot of parts of Africa, but their numbers are growing, especially in Africa. Latin America, there's tremendous dynamism. It's only the West which is going down this strange jubilette of atheism. Mind you, even in the West, there are tremendous green shoots and new life in the Christian churches. And so uh, there are a number of younger people in this book that I talk to who are leading and creating New Christian movements. You've got the splendid Campion College in Western Sydney and so on. So a new church is being born. And of course, we've still got to make the life of the old church uh, as substantial as possible. But the culture in the West has become very hostile to Christianity. It's one reason I started to come out as a Christian myself. I mean, I've led the normal kind of rackety journalistic life. I would make no claims of, uh, of virtue for myself. But um, when I started in journalism more than 40 years ago, the culture was at least notionally pro-Christian. Then it was kind of neutral for a long time. And now it is actively anti-Christian. And um, it's important not to overstate this. We, we Christians in the West are not persecuted in the way they are in Pakistan or China or, or parts of Africa. But the culture is unsympathetic and unfriendly and frequently unfair. So I have a long chapter on the popular culture. And, you know, As recently as the 1950s and even 60s, the biggest selling books were Christian books and they were in every bookshop. So you'd you'd go into Dimmicks or whatever when I was a kid and there'd be a big section on religion and you'd have the books of Malcolm Muggeridge and Evelyn Waugh and all all kinds of people and, um, you know, uh, Fulton Sheen and so forth and the best movies were Christian movies. You know, Spencer Tracy and Gregory Peck and Big Crosby were always playing clergymen and always winning Academy Awards and so on. And in the space of one or two generations, that's turned to either outright hostility or just complete whiting out of people. And it's interesting, one of the places where you find Christianity in popular culture is when it has an ethnic shield. So the increasing role of Hispanics in American culture is sort of leading a little bit of a comeback of religion. You know, I I write about the series Jane the Virgin, Mm. and this attempts to be a pro-Hispanic television series, lovely TV series, very funny, very clever, very warm-hearted. And it has to represent Jane's religious uh, beliefs. And they're not regarded as a wacky cultural artifact. They're, They're a vital thing. You know, her second husband is an atheist and she's feeling very discouraged. And he says, don't feel discouraged about your religion. Your faith is what makes you such a wonderful person. So this is a, this is a very unusual uh, comeback. But the, the hostility in the commanding heights of the culture, in academe, in large sections of the media, it's partly a baby boomer thing. The baby boomers rebelled mm. against their parents, and one thing they rebelled against was their parents' religious belief. It may be that the next generation, which is not so much post-Christian as pre-Christian, um, that's going to have a lot of problems because it's going to be cut off from the Christian categories, which define our civic life. But on the other hand, it won't have that sense that this is the religion of my grandparents or my parents. And I, I'm going to like, you know, baby boomers have really had the easiest life of any generation in human history. And they've had massive wealth accumulation because of their houses and everything. And the only way they can really cast themselves as heroic is to, you know, their adolescent rebellions. I'm I'm sounding a bit like a culture warrior here, Nick. This is not the tone I adopt in the book. But of course, part of their rebellion is the rebellion against their parents' Christianity. And they kind of keep that going mm. into their doddering mm. old mm. age. Whereas mm. I find younger people are a bit more open-minded.
0: Yeah, and no, I don't I, I mean I like you. I I I I I I I think people should avoid making the mistake of thinking that Christianity is on the decline. Quite the opposite, as you say, it is still the fastest growing religion in the world. Remarkable growth in places like Korea. You've listed a whole string more countries. Right. And in China, here's the thing that the Protestant church in particular and these little house churches, it, it, it is impossible, it seems to me right now, for the Chinese government, with all the instruments it has at its disposal, to stamp it out. Because as soon as they stamp on one house church it springs up somewhere else so the resilience of Christianity in the face of that repression is just remarkable but you know, I could just circle back about why it is so hard for or apparently so hard for politicians these days to to speak about religion as Menzies did because his speeches are littered with biblical references and it, it's something strange happened in the 1960s didn't it so in 66 Menzies retires from public life or from prime ministership at any rate. And in that same year, they have a census and that census shows that I think from memory that still in the upper 90%, 95 plus percent of people are still willing to say they're affiliated uh, to the Christian religion, albeit you know, it's a white, white Australia policy is just still just about to come to an end, but it's in force. Uh, so that's why it's Christianity, but it could be any religion. Uh, but in the 71 religion, five years later, the decline starts and it goes very rapidly till you get, I don't know, around 40 percent now or more will say they have no religion or won't say what it is. So uh, something happened. And the result of that, Greg, and this is coming to the point that really bothers me, is that we have a generation, perhaps two generations now for whom the Bible, the stories, the uh, even uh, are not part of their lives. They don't understand them. It's not about Christian where they believe them. But if you, if you say, you know, the good Samaritan, they've only got the vaguest idea what that parable is about. So we've, we've lost something very important, I think. Um, and again, I don't want to be a culture warrior, but can we, yeah, how much are we going to miss that? Can we get it back?
1: Well, I think your analysis is very sound, uh, Nick, very, very sound. Um, uh, widening the lens a bit. Martin Luther King's great I Have a Dream speech I think it was 1963 Mm. wasn't it I think uh, just from memory Mm. it was full of biblical uh, cadences I I have been to the mountaintop I have seen the promised land and of course the great African-American struggle for freedom was completely inspired by the struggle of the Jewish people for freedom Were, were, were you not slaves in Egypt you know the 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 old uh, they used to call them if you can use that word now they used to call them the Negro spirituals were were Christian but they were based on the the enslavement of the Jewish people and and Christianity and the church has survived very strongly in the American black community it's even though they they are on the left they it, it has survived it's one of the most powerful cohesive social forces and all the social research is that the the thing that really kills a community is when it loses its churches, uh, because the churches, more than anything, are principles of human solidarity. They give people purpose, structure, meaning. They give them charity as well, uh, and and so on. the um, the uh, the other icon, the other cultural icon at the end of the sixties. So I wrote a bit about Martin Luther King's speech, and the other popular culture icon, nineteen seventy, the Beatles' last album. let it be let it be of course is the words of mary when the archangel gabriel declares that she's going to be the mother of jesus she says i am the servant of the lord let it be with me according to your words and another line in that song is um uh, so Paul, uh, paul mccartney wrote this mother mary comes to me that was about his own mother but he was very very happy with the biblical interpretation another line in that song there is still a light that shines on me almost directly from John's gospel. There is a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Paul McCartney, of course, coming from a Liverpool Catholic family, all these verses were rolling around in his head. You almost couldn't do Martin Luther King's speech or let it be today because it would have no resonance. And part of our cultural crisis and part of our religious crisis is indeed a crisis of knowledge. So we're going to inflict on every innocent poor kid the safe schools program or something, but we're gonna make sure that they never read the book of Genesis with its stirring human rights declaration, human beings are made in the image of God. They never read the book of Job, the most magnificent contemplation of innocent suffering in all of human history. They never read the writings of Paul, which have shaped Western uh, civilization. Now, oddly enough, Nick, this is one reason I, I write these books and I've discovered a way to be the very best in your field enter a field in which there are no other participants <laughs> and astoundingly there are no real sort of mainstream you know books out of the secular culture dealing with christianity so there are a lot of great christian books written in australia and they are more or less always confined to within the christian community you know they're not given any kind of mainstream attention i went to the, a few years ago uh, after a memoir I wrote when we were young and foolish, I went to a whole lot of book festivals and there was not a single book at any of those festivals which was written from an overtly pro-Christian or pro-Jewish point of view. And I thought, how can this be? I'm seeing hundreds of books here, hundreds and hundreds of books, and not one is written from a pro-Christian or pro-Jewish point of view. Imagine going to a book festival in Indonesia and not running across Islam. Imagine going to a book festival mm-hmm. in Thailand and not running across Buddhism. It's it's absolutely inconceivable. So this is not a broad, good secularism, which you know embraces everybody and allows everybody to tell their story. This is an illiberal liberalism. This this is a whiting out. Now, having said that, the, all these book festivals were kind enough to invite me. So so God bless them. But. But in general, I think the culture tries to white Christianity out. And as a result, as you say, people are lacking elementary cultural knowledge, even if you have no religious belief whatsoever. Julia Gillard, God bless her, said she thought Bible knowledge was tremendously important and that she had got a great deal from her Bible classes as a kid, even though she was in adulthood, um, you know, a conscientious atheist.
0: Greg, I admire I, your courage, because it takes courage to, to, to do what you've done. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'd describe you as probably the runner-up for the Daniel in the Lion's Den Award, the winner being Lyle Shelton, who, when he was head of the Australian Christian Lobby, would go on to Q&A, whatever, and and speak out whatever, knowing that it, the entire room would be baying for his blood. Uh, you've done the same, uh, if not on this topic, then on, on others. Uh and, and that takes courage, and your intellectual and moral courage in that respect is to be hugely admired. But in finishing off, can we just go back to this central question? Why does a certain sector, educated people largely, well, almost completely higher educated people who consider themselves sophisticated, why do they react with such visceral anger, really, not just disagreement? Uh, to anything that 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 sort of slightly draws us towards Christianity, could it be perhaps that this is the new sectarianism? That the old sectarianism between Catholics and Protestants is long past, but the new sectarianism is between another two religions, and that's Christianity or faith in general and
1: wokeism. Yes, I think that's right, Nick. You know. Um so I will I will address that, but let me say you, you are wildly overestimating my courage. It's very kind of you. but uh, you know, um, when you've been in journalism forever, you're used to controversy and it's just kind of quite normal. And I would say really, uh, since kind of coming out as a Christian a bit more, so I never denied being a Christian or anything. And, and as I say, my life is a normal, rackety sort of accumulation of disasters that are a life of 40 years in journalism is, but I think on the whole people have been very kindly about it. And so I would urge people to come on in the water spine. And if you just go and say, well, look, this is who I am. This is what I believe really. Australia is still predominantly a very easygoing place. And, um, I do want to say this, Nick, I have had some wonderful discussions on the ABC about this book, and, um, I wouldn't have any criticism of the way I've been treated about this book or the last book on the ABC. So let me let me register that exception, if you like, to the general rule. But your general proposition of the anti-Christian sectarianism in the culture, I think, is, is true. And um, so my pair of books, um, the last one, God is good for you, address belief in God. This one addresses belief in the New Testament. The whole modernist project of the, over the last two or three hundred years has been to say, Belief in God is irrational and the New Testament is all lies. So, in a sense, my I'm trying my my little thimbleful of effort here is to rebut the the modernist assault on the core belief system of the West. And that modernist assault has been successful largely. The other thing I think is the tremendous level of ignorance. So until I wrote the last book, I'd never bothered to read The New Atheists. And I thought they would be dull, but maybe 1% of me was a bit worried they might say something I found a bit hard to deal with. In fact, I read them their arguments were so flimsy, so old-fashioned, the same old 19th century stuff, often sat next to a whole lot of irrelevant science. You know, the universe is 14 billion years old. Well, God wouldn't waste his time doing that. Well, how would they know what God would do? You know, it strikes (laughs) me as absolutely characteristic that God would spend Mm. 14 billion years Mm -hmm. creating a beautiful garden for us but this is not a serious argument against god it's just uh, it's just mockery and then this book attacks the the attack on the new testament so part of the hostility to christianity i think comes from the propaganda victory that science has declared against god and archaeology and history have declared against the new testament so that's part of it a lot of people have these assumptions not even born of hostility or anything, but that's in a sense, what the culture has taught them since they were little kids. The culture has taught them society used to be ruled by this superstition. Now we know it's all a lie. And then finally, in my interview with John Anderson, um, he quotes Blaise Pascal, who says, we're inclined to hate religion because we fear it might be true. And there's a kind of existential panic in liberalism, which is completely cut off from the transcendent because First of all, you don't know what to believe in. You don't know how to find transcendent purpose. Also, you're very worried. How are you going to entertain yourself until you die? And if there's no purpose, then often this just evolves into a kind of a search for intensity. And human beings are very dangerous when they are just looking for ever more intense experiences. And you don't, in a post-Christian world, find a post-Christian enlightenment of sweet reason you find a pre-christian paganism of vituperative hostilities you know ross Duthat, one of my favorite columnists in the world writes for the new york times not my favorite paper but he's he's a wonderful columnist Uh, he once remarked if you didn't like the religious right wait till you meet the post-religious right you know the left goes crazy with its ideology the right when it loses transcendent purpose tends to descend i think into a very ugly nationalism a very ugly tribalism and uh the left doesn't win forever by banishing christianity they're fools if they think that means they're going to win what that means though is that their opponents will be much more ugly much harder much tougher much more ruthless much more merciless than the opponents whom they have frequent uh recently vanquished having said all that though another point you made earlier is very true there's still Uh, probably half Australian society would regard itself as Christian. I think the last census said 52% of the population regards itself as Christian. There are sophisticated reasons for thinking that's a slight understatement. But given how much Christians are overrepresented in the older cohort, probably, you know, the percentage is less strong now because a lot of believers have died off and they haven't been replaced. But you'd say it's still half. Well, we don't get half the airtime you know we don't get half the cultural um celebration so i think christians ought to sort of you know look for their minority rights a bit more but there and and the final i promise you i keep saying this is final but the very final thought that i'll offer you is this in every human heart there is a constituency for the truth there is a constituency mm. in the human dna for the truth so however difficult the circumstances look you start with a big advantage if you're telling the truth. Because even though the hearer might've been educated to disbelieve everything you say, there'll be some part inside them which says, I recognize, I don't like that guy, but I recognize that something they're saying is true. So um, Nick, I'm an Irishman, situation desperate, advance on all fronts.
0: Greg, um... Uh, one of the consequences of you writing such compelling columns in the australian is it, it it never feels more than a couple of days since you and i had a conversation but of course it has been far too long and covid doesn't make it easier or in some sense it makes it easier of course because we can do it via zoom but thank you for your conversation to go, today i really think this book should sell very well and should sell and people should read it so why don't you do the quick 15 second advertisement before we sign off
1: well, thanks so much, Nick. It's just been a joy to talk to you. Here is the book. It's called Christians, the urgent case for Jesus in our world. And, um, you know, when you write a book, you become as ruthless as a parent trying to get their fa- you know, their firstborn into a good school. You lose all shame and sense of modesty. And uh, Nick, you've been too generous to me, but it's really been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you, Greg. been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the menzies research center we'd like to bring you many more of course and you can help us by subscribing from just ten dollars a month go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe i'm nick cater and thank you for listening